I read an interview recently about a man named Beckett Cook, uh, with whom I share a last name, but no relation, and I don't think I've ever met him before. He's a Hollywood set designer who was on top of his career in Hollywood, but said he felt at an absolute low. And I'll read you some of his words. He says, I was at a fashion party, and I just felt empty. I had done everything in Hollywood, met everyone, traveled everywhere. Yet I was overwhelmed with emptiness at this party. It was one of the most intense, is this all there is moments uh, in my life. This is a man that regularly swam in Drew Barrymore's pool with her in the summertime. A man who designed sets for Natalie Portman, who would travel the world to design photo shoots for Vogue magazine, and then would have those shoots nominated in award show after award show, so we'd get to go to all those great award shows we watch on TV. Won awards at him that was recognized by his peers as one of the best in the field, got to do everything. And yet there he was on top of the world, completely broken, and completely empty. His words remind us of what we all know, but what we somehow seem to forget often. The things that we chase after don't make us happy. That next promotion, for instance, seems like it's going to make you happy. You chase after it, you get it, you're happy for a little while, and the happiness fades. Or there are fantastic restaurants with food all over the world here in Indianapolis, and you can eat at one and then another and then another, but no matter how good the food is, no matter how happy it makes you, eventually you get hungry again and the happiness goes away. You can even give your life to something as fulfilling as raising children and find happiness there for many years, but eventually the children will grow up and they'll move away. And they may even disappoint you. And if you found your happiness there, you're going to wind up feeling empty. Even living the fullest, greatest life of decadent food and effective work and lavish riches and great comfort, even that life could lead only to death. And so we've all got to ask the same question that he asked that day. Is this all there is? Well, for the past six weeks, we have been looking at foundations for the Christian life in Genesis 1 and 2. You may be getting used to the pattern by now. Every week, we've picked one foundation from those two chapters. We've seen how it says what it is there, how it unfolds throughout the scriptures, and then what it means for our life today. Today, as we look at one of those foundations, the last of the six of them, we're going to find an answer to that question. That answer is, no, this is not all there is. We were actually made for somewhere far, far better than this. And as we look at it in the scriptures, as we talk about it, what I hope the Lord shows you, if you follow Jesus, is that you are headed for a place that satisfies every longing in your heart because only when looking at that place and longing for that place are you equipped to live a holy life today. And if you don't follow Jesus, I pray that it will show you how great the things that he offers to you are and that the glory of that picture may be some part of drawing you to follow Jesus. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2 today. It's probably on page 1 or 2 of your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Dark Pew Bible in front of you and we will read it there. We will see the place that we were originally made for and maybe understand why there's this nagging homesickness in all of our hearts. We're going to start with verse 8 in Genesis 2. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. 
out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It, grows, it flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. The Delium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the next river is the Gion and it flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It flows east of Assyria and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. The word of the Lord. In ancient times, kings had the habit of attaching very nice gardens to their homes so that in the cool of the day, they could leave that palace and walk through the garden if it was nice outside. And these gardens weren't like the kind of garden that might be in your backyard where they're growing vegetables and things like that. Uh, it's not like the pumpkin patch kind of thing. This is more like what we would think of as a country garden, like a, a very nice park-like atmosphere, maybe with paths, beautiful landscaping exotic flowers. Uh, take that, add to it the ideal of a, natural, nat uh, a national park with all kinds of wonderful natural features, and you may be getting somewhere close to the idea of the gardens they had back then. One of them, for instance, was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which was probably built by Nebuchadnezzar II and perhaps attached to the side of his house, one of the great wonders of the world. These places were fantastic. Gardens like that were probably what readers had in mind when they read of a place called Eden and when they read of a garden toward the east in Eden. So if you're thinking of a tomato garden, if you're thinking of the day when you go out to pick your zucchini, that's not the kind of garden we're talking about. No, we're talking more like Millennium Park in Chicago, more like Cypress Gardens down in Florida. Or if you've been to the Biltmore Estate in North Carolina and you've seen those gorgeous gardens that are attached to that beautiful house, more like that kind of garden. Add to that a river that comes up from the ground and flows through the garden and then leaves the garden and separates into four rivers and, and brings all these beautiful jewels and stones with it. Now this river is big enough that it supplies those four rivers and they go almost to the ends of the earth. So this thing must be way up high on a mountain somewhere, high enough to, to cause that kind of flow going on. So you probably had beautiful mountain views. Uh, add to that that it's probably on the east side of God's house because that's the kind of garden picture they would have had in the ancient world. Add to that that not only are you there, but you've got an awesome job. You're the caretaker of this garden, and you're fully equipped with all the dominion over it that you need, everything you need to fully care for this thing and make it more and more awesome every year. Add to that that you've got a perfect mate who is there with you, and you and your mate have the ability to multiply and fill this garden with offspring who can then help you care for it and maintain it. You can make it more and more beautiful year after year. Can you imagine walking with God through that garden in the cool of the day? And maybe you take some of that onyx and some of that delium and gold and you fashion a nice bench and the two of you just sit there and look at this pool that this beautiful river has made and listen to the water flow through it, you and your mate and the Lord God together. How awesome would that be?
Or maybe you take some vine and you hang it from a tree and you attach some wood to it and you make a swing. I know this probably sounds crazy, but this could have happened. Like you make yourself three swings, you, your mate, and the Lord, and you just swing there by the water and enjoy sweet fellowship with the Lord God. Or maybe he takes you up to a beautiful overlook and you watch those four rivers go through the whole world and deposit their sparkling minerals and jewels all over the world and you just stand there and marvel at it together. And sometimes he says to you, you know what, let's go visit the two great trees in the middle and why don't you eat with me from the tree of life? This is a place that you want to go to. This is a place you want to be. And the Lord put those images in there so that we would desire it. And so we sing things like, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses, right? He speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet, the birds hush their singing. And the melody that he gave to me within my ear is ringing and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. That is beautiful imagery, right? And I think most of us probably miss the tragedy in that imagery. It's a song about a place that you can't go to. None other has ever known. Adam knew it, Eve knew it, and you and I have not known that joy in that garden. We were banished from that garden left with this nagging homesickness for a place that we know we're supposed to be, a place we can't help but sing about in our hearts, but we can't be at. And I hope in two weeks to tell you a little bit more about why we can't be there. We'll talk about chapter three and the things that go on there. But the short version is that there was basically one law in that garden. You can eat from any tree. You can eat from this great tree, but you cannot eat from this great tree. And of course, we rebelled against the Lord and went pretty much straight to that tree we're not supposed to eat from and ate from that tree. So what he did is he banished us out of that garden further to the east and he guarded the entrance, which is on the east, uh, with a cherub, which is some sort of angelic heavenly creature that holds a flaming sword and guards that entrance so that we cannot get back into this beautiful place where we once lived. Those pictures are there then to make you homesick for the place that we were originally made to design and dwell, for the place that our hearts ought to be longing for. Now, if you can see that, maybe we can see why no amount of success or riches or flourishing could ever satisfy us, right? We're stuck with a homesickness that we can't cure, and all these little things we can get access to, well, they just echo the happiness of Eden, right? Riches just echo that glory that was there with all of those riches and wealth and jewels that were coming from that river in the first place. The finest food you could ever eat is just a memory of the fruit that we could eat in the garden. The great fellowship that you can have with a spouse or that you can have with a church is just a memory of the fellowship we shared with each other and we shared with the Lord in the garden. So the reason that description is there then is to make us homesick. Any Israelite wandering through the desert reading that picture would say, oh, that would be so much nicer than where we are now. So if you want this story to change you, the first thing you got to do is identify all those aches in your heart as homesickness for God's dwelling place. 
So with that homesickness in our hearts, we'll start turning through the pages of the Bible as we have in past weeks, and we will see how the Lord develops that truth. One great thing he does is early in the story, only two chapters after we're banished out of the garden, the Lord gives us hope that maybe we could find the things we had in Eden there, particularly the best of all those blessings was the fellowship with God. He would come in the cool of the day and walk with us. That's what our hearts really long for, the riches. We could leave them be if we could just walk with him again. Well, in chapter five, there is this neat little feature in one of the genealogies I want you to see. Flip with me there if you've got your Bible in front of you. It's just gonna be a page or two uh, into the future. Chapter five is what they call a genealogy, okay? Uh, that is where we basically learned who is the father of who, who is the father Father of who it's important to help us trace the story of the Bible and every once in a while there's great meaning when the pattern changes in a genealogy so look with me then maybe at verse 6 and you'll just see the pattern there Seth he lives 105 years he fathers Enosh uh, then he lives 807 more years. He has more sons and daughters, and then he dies, right? That pattern goes on and on. Live for so many years, have your first son. Live some more, have other children, and then die. That pattern over and over and over and over again. We'll scan down to verse 21, and we're going to see that pattern break. There's this character named Enoch, and he says, Enoch lived 65 years, and he became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God. Well, that's different. Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters, back in the pattern again. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. All of a sudden we have hope. Huh. Some people still get to walk with God. And I wonder where he went. I wonder where the Lord took him. Did he, did he take him back to the garden? Did he take him to the house? Where is Enoch now? So all of a sudden, five chapters into Genesis, we've got this great hope that perhaps we will get to walk with God again and perhaps he will take us to some great place where we can be. And as the pages unfold, now that hope unfolds even more. All of a sudden, the Lord appears to this man named Abraham who has no reason that the Lord would reach out to him like this. The Lord just reaches out to him and says, hey, leave where you are and go to this land that I have given you. He said, I'm gonna give you a sweet and beautiful land. Does that sound familiar? Kind of like the land in Eden we were given. Uh, come there and, and I'll dwell with you there, he says. Then Abraham's grandson, Jacob, later in this book, is laying down and looking up at the night sky and he has this vision of a ladder or a staircase or something and there are angels coming down and going up this mysterious thing. Like this little sign that there's still some kind of connection between the heavens and the earth. Some kind of connection between where we are in our exile and where God dwells. Maybe, just maybe, we'll get to dwell with God one day again. Well, sure enough, uh, Jacob's descendants, they become slaves in Egypt. The Lord brings them all out of slavery. There's a million or so of them now. They're wandering together through the desert. And the Lord begins to form them into the nation of Israel and to give them a law. And part of that law stipulated, here is how you can meet with me. I'm going to give you a design for a place. And if you build that place, I will rest my presence there. I will dwell with you and you can meet with me there, much like I used to walk with you in the garden. So they built this tent according to the Lord's design while they were wandering, and then eventually they're permanently in their home, and so they're able to build a permanent building called the temple. And those two buildings had a lot of echoes of Eden in their design. 
For instance, their decorations were full of plants, kind of to make you think of a garden. One of those decorations is called a menorah, that kind of candle that you might imagine around Hanukkah time, right? Uh, that seems to resemble the tree of life, like a little memory of the tree of life there. There's gold all over the place, precious stones just like Eden, particularly the gold and the onyx. The priests would wear it in their garments as they walked around in the place. So it kind of reminds you of Eden a little more. The temple was elevated up on the mountain of Zion like Eden must have been if it had these rivers flowing out of it. And it was entered from the east just like Eden was. More than that, it had caretakers. It had people called the priests who were assigned to work that place and to care for it. And those verbs that are used in the law for the way the priests are supposed to care for that building are the same verbs used uh, in chapter two as we just read. Adam was there to work it and to keep it. Those priests are there to work and to keep the temple and the tabernacle. Moses would go into the tent to the tabernacle. He'd come out and his face would be glowing. You know why? Because God was there. And Solomon, after he builds the temple, he dedicates it and the glory of the Lord comes down and fills the place and we get to be with God's presence again. It had echoes of Eden, but that's because God was there. And that's what's most important about that building. Those caretakers, uh, some of them called the sons of Korah, they were of the Levitical tribe, they actually wrote some songs about how wonderful that place is and how much they longed to be in it. Here's one in Psalm 84. A Levite writes, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. This is somebody who wants to be in that place. Or in Psalm 42, which we read earlier this morning, uh, one of those caretakers of the temple, for some reason, is forced to be far away. Maybe he's in exile. Maybe he's fighting in a war. It's tough to tell. For whatever reason, he can't do his work caring for the temple. He can't be there. And here's how he feels about that in Psalm 42. He says, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? In other words, when? will I be in the temple again? My tears have been my food day and night while they sing to me all the day long. Where is your God? But these things I remember as I pour out my soul within me. I used to go along with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Here he is far, far away from the temple saying, remember when I used to get to be with God's people in the place where he dwelled. That's what he's homesick for. That's where his heart longs to be, where God visits his people. So you can imagine then why it's so significant when years later, because Israel has sinned for centuries, the Lord not only kicks them out of the land again, but he also removes his presence from the temple. That would be gut-wrenching and heartbreaking for the Israelites. They had a land where they could dwell with God and God dwelled there then. But now, no, they are cut off from that place. Now, no, the Lord isn't even in that place anymore. If they could go back, it wouldn't be the same because God is there. And now all of a sudden, here Israel is in exile, forced out of their home in Babylon, homesick for that temple, homesick for the place where God dwelled. 
Now flip with me if you've still got your Bible open to Ezekiel 47. And as we read that, let's just try to read it with that homesickness that Israel would have had for the temple. Because they're in exile when he's writing this. And he's writing about a temple, but it just sounds very different. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 in Ezekiel 47. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it on the screen too. The prophet says, Then he brought me back to the door of the house. And behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east. That's familiar. For the house faced east. That's familiar too. And the water was flowing down from under from the right side of the house, south of the altar. He brought me out by the way of the north gate. And he led me around on the outside to the outer gate, by the way, the gate that faced east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. And when the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits. And he led me through the water, the water reaching to the ankles. And he measured a thousand, and he led me to the water through the river, reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, reaching to the loins. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Trees, that's familiar too. And then he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down toward the Arabia. Uh, And they go down toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea and the waters of the sea become fresh. That's like nothing we've ever seen. Uh, It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there, and the others become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that the fishermen will stand beside it from the Engedi to the Engelium. There will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the great sea, very many. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh, for they'll be left for salt. By the river on its bank on one side and on the other will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. And they will bear every month because of their water that flows from the sanctuary. And the fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Talk about hope to a homesick Israelite. Ezekiel sees a vision, not just for the temple that they're homesick for, but for something even better that they have never seen or experienced before. And that is huge because that means they aren't meant to be looking back at the temple. They are meant to be looking forward at something new, something they have not yet experienced. Maybe the future will be even better than the past. Maybe the future temple will be even better than the temple of the past. And it's the same for us as well. Now we can read about Eden and long for it, but Ezekiel gives us a huge shift here. We're not meant to look back and long for Eden. Instead, we're meant to look forward because evidently there is something coming that is even better than what we had in Eden. It was great, but it was not this great as what we read about from this prophet. The Lord is building and architecting a city that is better than that garden, and it's the real place that we're homesick for. If you want to read about it, let's flip all the way to the end of the Bible, to Revelation 21. 
we'll just read about this glorious place that the people of God are headed to. The prophet says, and he carried away in the spirit to the great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And it had a great and high wall with 12 gates and the gates, at the gates, 12 angels. And the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were written the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, its length as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod 1,500 miles its length and its width and its height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. And the foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper and the second sapphire and the, the third, I can't even pronounce this, carlecdony and the fourth emerald and the fifth sardonyx and the sixth sardius and the seventh chrysolite and the eighth beryl and the ninth topaz and the tenth chrysoprase and the eleventh jasper and the 12th amethyst jewels I can't even pronounce are going to be there and the 12 gates were the 12 pearls each one of the gates was a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass and now it gets really crazy I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple and the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illuminated it and its lamp is the Lamb the nations will walk by its light and the king of the earth will bring their glory into it. We'll skip down to the next chapter, verse one. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the lamb. This is the city and the sort of temple Ezekiel was talking about. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree will be for the healing of the nations. That's the place that your heart longs for. And why does your heart long for it? Well, look back to 21 verse three. Here's why your heart longs for it. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there would no longer be any death. There would no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. That is why your heart longs to be there. The dwelling place of God will be with man. We won't just get to be in the garden that's attached to God's dwelling place. We will get to be in the house, in the city, in God's dwelling place. How silly are we to think that one more steak will satisfy us? How silly are we to think that a nice watch 
would make us ultimately happy. That the praises of grateful sons and daughters we have cared for would fulfill us forever. Those things are just echoes of Eden and foreshadows of God's final dwelling place with man, the only place, church, where you can be happy. See, our problem is not that we're willing to settle for the, the problem is that we're willing to settle for the echoes of Eden and for little foretastes of our home when our hearts know that we were made for more. We don't want too much, guys. We want too little and we're willing to settle for too little. For instance, this is how greed can take over your heart, right? For some season in your life, you just fall into a little bit of extra money. Maybe you're 12 and you mow the lawn and it gives you 20 bucks and you're like, 20 bucks, yeah! Or maybe you get a bonus at Christmas and it's a little more money than you need and all of a sudden, you've got this disposable income. You can do whatever you want with this money because your needs are met and you can, you can give, it, give it away, you can buy something cool, whatever you want to do with it. And that feels good, doesn't it? Your heart's like, yeah! Because that feels like home. That, that's a taste of the abundance that we once had in Eden of the lavish life we're going to get to live one day in the final city. And so your heart's just crying out like, yes, that is familiar. I like that. So you're ready to seek for more of it, right? You probably figure out eventually if I work really hard, I can get even more of that, right? And, and then that winds up not being enough. And so then you realize, man, if I work even harder and maybe neglect some other things in my life, I can get a little more. And then you're happy a little bit. That's not enough. Okay, maybe if I cut some corners, I can get even more. If I just kind of compromise on the Lord's ethics a little bit, I can get even more. Next thing you know, you're getting more and more and a thousand isn't enough and 10,000 isn't enough and a million isn't enough because no amount of money or riches is ever going to satisfy your heart because the hole in your heart's bigger than that. You're longing for something that money could never fill. You're longing for your final home, which will have some lavishness in it. And so the only way that you can really enjoy the riches that God gives you is to appreciate them. And even as you spend the money or even as you look at the nice watch or put on the nice sport coat or whatever, say, this is great, but I can't believe that something better than this is coming one day. If you can tell your heart that, then you're finally free to really enjoy the good things that God gives you. Gluttony takes over the heart in the same way, right? Like you, you eat or drink something good and your heart is like, yeah, that is good, right? You take a bite of a perfect medium rare steak. Sorry for those of you that don't like medium rare steak, but you take a bite of that and mm, or you drink that perfect cup of coffee and it's like, all right. For just a moment there, you're not thinking about your problems. You're not thinking about the stuff you've got to do. You're just absorbed in like, man, this is good. Why is your heart like that? Well, there used to be a day when we could just pick any good fruit we wanted and just eat it. There will come a day when we're going to have a feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And our hearts long for that. So you get some good food or some good drink and you're like, man, that feels like home. And so your heart wants more. I think I'm going to have another one of those because, you know, it tastes good for a while, but then the feeling goes away and then you get hungry again and you're ready for some more and some more and some more and no fine food would ever be enough to fully satisfy you. Even if it did for a moment, the happiness would go away. And so you want more and more and more. And the only way to really enjoy it is to take that bite of steak or take that sip of coffee or whatever it is that you love, eat that donut, whatever, and say to yourself, man, this is good. I can't imagine what eating from the tree of life is going to be like. 
I can't believe we have better food than this coming to us at the marriage supper. If you can do that, then finally your heart's free to enjoy these kind of things. One more example, because it's not just the vices that can take over your heart, but even the good works that we had in Eden can take over your heart. Uh, We had the job of caring for that garden. We were the caretakers in that garden. I believe we'll have caretaking roles in the coming kingdom. Some other passages we won't look today, I think, speak to that. Uh, So that's on our hearts, right? And there are so many of us that find happiness in the echo of that and caring for somebody. A mother who finds so much happiness in caring for her children. A pet owner that finds great happiness in caring for a pet. A business owner that finds great happiness in flourishing their employees and making that business work. A pastor that takes great happiness in seeing the church flourish because of his care. I mean, all of us have things to care for and we find great happiness in it, right? But no amount of flourishing of what you're caring for is ever really going to make you ultimately happy because that's, again, just an echo of what we had and a foreshadow of what we are going to have. And so even a good thing like that can begin to take over your heart and you can say, okay, that was good, but it's not enough. I want it to flourish more. That was good, but it's not enough. I want it to flourish more. You can become obsessed with caring for your children, with caring for your pets. I could become obsessed with caring for you guys. It's possible for any of us in our hearts because no amount of the things you care for flourishing is ever going to ultimately satisfy you because what you want is that coming city where you will care for something and it will flourish. All those longings, they're just homesickness. We don't want too much. We want too little. Set your heart on better riches, on better food, on a better place to care for in God's final city because here's the good news. God has made a way that you can go there. You can hope in it. Now, only holy people can enter into that city. And we look at the things we have done before God and we can say we are not by our own deeds holy people. We have sinned against God. But here's the neat thing. God is doing things this time reverse to how he did it last time. Before he made us or he made a garden and then he put the people in it, right? Well, this time he's making the people first and then he's going to bring the city down for us to dwell into. And the way that he is making those people is through the blood sacrifice of his son, Jesus. We are all rebels before God. We don't deserve to be part of that city, part of that kingdom, but the Lord himself comes down, Jesus, the son of God, and gives his life as a payment for our sin, rises from the dead to conquer death, and now says you will see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. He's saying, I am the stairway to heaven that you are longing for. You can, through me, you can get to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you will put your trust in this one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, well, then you can have access to that city. Then when you die, you can have a guarantee that you will rise again from the dead if the Lord doesn't come back before you die and we'll get to dwell there eternally with him. You can be a part of his holy people today, even as we continue to sin and continue to receive forgiveness for it. And the really cool thing is, uh, for Christians who are following Jesus, uh, we get not only that eternal hope of promise, Uh, But we get a foretaste of it right now. Uh, The book of Ephesians says that we have been given the Spirit of God as a down payment on a future inheritance. Now, if you've ever bought a house, you made a down payment on it, and you know as well as I do, your down payment did not pay the house off, did it? No, 
It was just a statement that you were serious about paying the house off, right? It was a, it was a way that you could say, okay, here is $20,000 to show that we are going to make a real effort to pay this thing off. Well, the Lord gives us a down payment on our inheritance that he has promised us. It is not enough to keep us happy forever, but it is enough to show us he is serious about giving us that inheritance. What is the down payment? The down payment is the spirit of God dwelling in you forever, keeping you holy, giving you comfort in the dark nights of the soul, giving you guidance, illuminating the scriptures as you read them. In the spirit, God is with you now because he's serious about being with you in the flesh one day. That's what he gives to us now. For Christians, that means two things every day. It means living in hope for God's city every day. And it means seeking your happiness right now in the presence of God that you have with you. Because that's the best foretaste of what is coming. To live hoping for that eternal city is actually how the book of Hebrews defines faith. It says in Hebrews 11.1, 1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. So the things we're hoping for, that celestial city getting to dwell forever in a city that is somehow like from here to LA long and that wide and that tall, dwelling there with God, having hope in that, even though you've never seen it, even though it sounds fanciful, that's faith because it's trusting in the promises of God. And you need that faith and that picture today to live the holy life that God has called you to. As you read down through that chapter, we see that happening in many people's lives. I'm gonna skip down to verse eight. This is Hebrews 11, verse eight. The reason Abraham was able to stay holy was because of the hope he had in God's coming city. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed by going out to a place to which he was to receive his inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs to the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has the foundations whose architect and builder is God. He's got his faith, his hope in that city that God has promised. That's why he's able to leave everything and go and follow the Lord. And then in verse 13, it says of them, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. How were Abraham and Sarah able to obey God? Because they had their sights set on the heavenly city that God was preparing for them. How can you, in the midst of all the temptation you are going through, all of the cultural pressure to abandon biblical teachings on so many issues, how can you stay pure? How are you ever going to do that? By keeping your eyes on that city that God has prepared for you. That'll keep you from cutting corners in business. That'll keep you pure in temptation. 
That'll keep you from tearing apart the church with gossip when things get difficult. Keep your eyes on that city. That's the one way that this should affect your life every day. Keep your eyes on that city and you can stay pure. The other way that this should affect your life every day, Christians, has to do with a promise that you get of the Holy Spirit dwelling with you today as that down payment. If that is the down payment God chose to give us, to, to give us a foretaste of what is coming, if that's the 20 grand he put down on the house to say, I'm gonna pay the whole thing off, then that sweet fellowship we have with the Lord is the best picture we've got of what is coming to us. That means that those moments in the morning and evening that you spend with your Bible opened and you spend in prayer to the Lord and sweet fellowship with God, that's the best hour of your day if you're spending it. That means that skipping church is as dumb as skipping dessert because this is the best hour of the week. This is when you are with the people who are indwelled with God's spirit. The best foretaste you have got of what heaven is going to be like is this gathered people right here. And if you miss that, you are missing it. If you go a whole day without the fellowship of God that comes from reading the word, that is as significant as going a whole day without eating. And it should be that memorable to you. If you go a whole week without meeting with God's people, that should be as significant as going a whole week without eating food or without drinking water and it ought to be that significant to you and it also means that the joy of walking in the spirit by which I mean living in obedience to God's ways is worth denying the passions of the flesh now the Lord doesn't leave us permanently when we sin the way that he left the temple in Israel but it is true that our actions can grieve that spirit and we can put distance between our relationship with the Lord, between us and the Lord in our relationship through our sin, especially if we don't seek forgiveness. You might think of maybe a husband and wife who they're dedicated to each other, they're not going to leave each other, but because there's so much sin and tension that's gone unresolved and unforgiven, there's just some coldness there, right? They're still together, but they're cold. Well, you can do the same thing in your relationship with the Lord. He's not going to leave you, but if you're not walking in the spirit and the fellowship like that, well, it's gonna start feeling dry. It's gonna start feeling cold. And what you've got to do is bring your sin to the Lord and confess it and restore that sweetness of fellowship because walking in obedience in the spirit is worth denying every good thing that this world offers us against the will of the Lord. And finally, there are some of you who do not follow Jesus and you cannot say with certainty today that you've got hope of ever entering the city that you were made for. And today is the day that you need to begin following Jesus. Don't let it go by another day without choosing to follow him. You need to turn away from all the pleasures of the world, all of the echoes of Eden that grip your heart and just say to Jesus, I want to walk with you again. I know that you have died to forgive my sins. Let me walk with you, Jesus. Follow him, walk in his ways, and walk with him instead of walking with the world. If you want to talk with me about that after the service, I would love to talk with you about it. I love talking about baptism, about joining the church, all the ways we show people that our deacons will also be up here to talk with you about the service after that. You know, I started this morning talking about that man Beckett Cook, the Hollywood set designer who woke up to the emptiness of his flourished life. That story goes a beautiful direction. Uh, he says later, I had already been wrestling with questions about the meaning of life, searching for it in all sorts of ways, but I knew God was never an option because I was gay. It was off the table. 
I wasn't confused about what the Bible had to say about homosexuality. I knew it was clear, but I was still searching for meaning. And he says that in one day in 2009, he was at a coffee shop and there were some Christians who were part of a church in his area in California who were at kind of that big table in the coffee shop with their Bibles open, studying the Bible together. And he was just intrigued by it because he had all this emptiness in his heart. And so he went up to them, said, what are you guys doing? They said, oh, we're studying the Bible. We're a part of a church. And he asked them, well, what does your church teach about homosexuality? And they said, well, the, the Bible teaches that it's a sin. And he says... I appreciated the honesty and that they didn't beat around the bush. And the next Sunday morning, he was at church with him and he heard the gospel preached and he believed upon the gospel. And the pastor of that church started discipling him over coffee every week. The church rallied around him to support him and he left his whole lifestyle behind, not just the sexual lifestyle, but all of it, the parties, the lavishness, the career, everything, the friends, all of it. And he says, giving up the gay life wasn't that difficult. It was actually quite easy. I had just met Jesus and the relationship with him was so overwhelming and wonderful and all-consuming. And he talks later about the great cost. He lost so many friends because he chose to follow Jesus, but he says, it didn't feel costly because I was so full of joy. That's a man that knows where he's headed, that knows what his heart longs for. It's not the pleasures of the world. It's fellowship with God, fellowship we were made for, and fellowship that is coming to his people in the final city where we will dwell. Let's pray together.